In this episode of Real Christianity, I continue my teaching through Romans chapter 2, and we confront the issue of judgment, not only the coming judgment of those who deny Christ, but also the judgment of Christians. Ultimately, I look at how Christians need to view judgment in light of the gospel. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Today's episode is titled Romans 2, 6 through 11, The Coming Judgment of Jesus Christ. Now, as you know, this show is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org. If you're watching the video recording of this episode, please be sure to subscribe or follow for more biblical content. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever podcasts can be listened to, thank you for your faithful listenership. You can also follow our ministry on just about every social media platform and we'd love to have you on the journey. Now, I have a request for you. Uh, Here at relearn.org, we have a vision to produce more books and resources and courses and content that help strengthen biblical and theological literacy in the church, but these things cost more money. Now, as a ministry, we rely on the faithful donations of people just like you who consume our content. So would you guys consider setting up a subscription donation uh, you know, when just a few hundred of you commit to giving just five, ten, or twenty dollars per month, it changes our world over here. So, if you feel the Lord leading you to support us, just go to relearn.org/donate. Now, speaking of resources, have you guys seen or heard of our new gospel service, MailTheGospel.org, yet? You can mail a theologically accurate, bold, beautifully designed presentation of the gospel to anyone in the world. Uh, you have a family or friend uh, who needs to hear the gospel or a coworker or a neighbor who needs to hear the gospel, get their mailing address and go to mailthegospel.org and send it to them today. All right, guys, let's go ahead and dive in. Last week, we saw Paul turn his focus from chapter one uh, when he was discussing the Greco-Roman pagans who denied God to now the focus is the legalistic Jews who denied Christ. Uh, his intention is really to show that God was impartial toward humanity in his justice. The Jews who believed that they were special needed to realize that outside of Christ, they had the same condemnation as the Gentile world. What that really means is their sacrificial and ceremonial law-keeping that was so prominent in the Jewish world does not make them righteous, and their dead religious practices would send them to the same destination as even these heathen uh, pagan Gentiles that we spoke of in chapter 1. So we learned about James chapter 2, verses 10, which I'll read to you here. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty in all of it. The Jews had underestimated the power of the law and overestimated their ability to keep it. This was essentially the the grave failure of the Jewish mindset. Uh, They did not realize that their only hope was to trust in Christ, the one who could keep the law and the only one who is righteous that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what Paul is trying to tell the Jews here, which is again instructive for any legalistic group, you got the Mormons, you got the Jehovah's Witnesses, you got people from the Church of Christ, you got the Amish, uh, you got the Roman Catholic Church, anybody that believes in a faith plus works uh, salvation that you need to maintain your obedience to maintain your salvation. uh, This is essential for them to understand because law keeping cannot keep you, only the perfect work of Christ can keep you. Your religious acts, your church attendance, your Bible reading and prayer frequency, none of that contributes to your righteous standing or your justified standing before God, only Christ. Outside of Christ, you and I are equally 
unrighteous because we've all broken the law and no one will be justified by works of the law. Uh, we are guilty of the whole law. We can do nothing to become guiltless except have faith in Jesus Christ. So for us to escape the justice of God, we really need two things. And I want to talk about those two things for a second. We need someone to be punished for our sins. So that's number one. We need someone to be punished for our sins. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We know that uh, this is what is coming for us, physical death, but also spiritual death. Uh, we deserve to die. So in order for God to maintain his perfect justice uh, for our sin against his law, uh, for disobeying him, someone must die for our sins. But thank God for Romans 5, 8, which says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 2, 13 through 14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So God dealt with our sins by accrediting our sins and our punishment to Christ. This is the whole theological idea behind 2 Corinthians 5.21, which everybody should memorize. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which leads us to my second point. So first point, point number one is we needed somebody to die for our sins. Point number two is that we need an alien righteousness. So, even if the debt of our sin has been paid, it doesn't make us holy. Uh, someone paid our fine, but ultimately we still committed the crime, uh, ruining our holiness. We are sinners. We are sinful. Uh, we need to become righteous somehow. Uh, we need someone to impute their righteousness to us. Uh, so we need not only the consequences of our sin to be paid for, uh, but we also need the righteousness of Christ applied to us or applied to our account. And so Romans 4, 5 says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we get a righteous verdict because of Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ is counted as a righteous verdict from God. And so this is really the gospel. God imputes our sins to Jesus and Jesus imputes his righteousness to us through faith. That is the gospel. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. That's the doctrine that we're talking about here. In theological circles, this is often called double imputation. We impute our sins to Christ. Christ imputes his righteousness to us through faith. John MacArthur once said, God treated Jesus as if he lived your life so that he could treat you as if you lived his. Wonderful quote. So the Jews did not understand this. They did not grasp this. The Jews still believed that both uh, their privileged status and their law keeping uh, was sufficient to make them righteous, to justify them before God. They believed the wrath of God was reserved specifically for the Gentile world, those dirty pagans that are outside of the, uh, uh, the, the borders of Israel. And this was and still is Israel's fundamental flaw. This is still what the Orthodox Jewish person would believe. And so they were essentially like barn animals that are 
trying to sweep up their dirt pen floor when in reality, God requires a crystal clear glass floor. It's just impossible. We can't clean it enough. We can't get it clear enough. It's just a mess. And that is that our good works cannot meet God's standards. We can't do it. We can't clean ourselves up enough to meet God's standards uh, for his holiness. Only Christ can do that. So this is the foundational context of what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm going to read Romans 2, 6 through 11. That's our focus verse for this episode. And then we'll dive in verse by verse. So chapter 2, verse 6 through 11 in the ESV, it says, He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So at a high level, what we're looking at here is this text is teaching two uh, distinct destinations of the human soul and demonstrating the universality of the gospel or the judgment of Jesus Christ. Um, it, it didn't matter, essentially, if you were Jewish or if you were Gentile, if you denied the way to eternal life, uh, if you didn't seek out immortality, or you disobeyed the truth of God, which is Jesus Christ, uh, you will end up in hell. You will end up under God's wrath and God's fury. So to the Jew who relied upon their ethnic heritage or moralism to appease the wrath of God, uh, this is a shocking message. This is a shocking message to them. And Paul is leveling again the, the playing field. He's essentially saying what Jesus said in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father, or no one comes to the Father except through me. So this truth uh, stripped the Jews from any perception of unique favor. Uh, it demonstrated that all people lay equal before God uh, under the judgment of Jesus Christ. So let's look at these verses up close to better understand the apostle's meaning here. So verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. This is a central doctrine for the Christian life. Uh, judgment is individualized and not corporate. You got to grasp this. We will each stand before Jesus Christ. So it's individualized justice. And this is something that the Jews should have known, uh, but it was blotted out by their pride. It appears in the Old Testament. I'll give you one example. Psalm 62, 12, for God will render to a man according to his work. Uh, Matthew 16, 27, for the man or for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Revelation 22, 12, uh, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. So each of us are going to stand individually before God on judgment day. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 confirms this. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. So ultimately, guys, God will render to each one a certain degree of punishment. 
we often view hell as this one size fits all, kind of everybody's down there equally damned. Um, but this teaches that there's going to be a diverse set of punishments that are varying in severity as it correlates to our frequency and grievousness of our sin. And so there's a divine record keeping going on here, and he's going to repay according to how we lived. And so this is essential and interesting. This would also really terrify the non-believer and, and sober up the Christian. And so one thing I want to make very clear here, as you might be thinking, okay, so as Christians, we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What does that mean for us? I thought that we were saved by grace, and what's going on there? So while the, the saint's final verdict, the final verdict of a Christian uh, does not rest upon their works, we will be justified. Uh, we cannot live as if we're not going to stand before God. So our, our final verdict will be righteous because Christ is righteous. Uh, but we, we have to live in a way that we realize that we will stand uh, in judgment before God. And so 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home uh, in the body or away from it, uh, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So God is keeping, again, this divine record of our honorable and dishonorable deeds. We have to uh, rest in the distinguishing difference between judgment and condemnation. There's a difference between judgment and condemnation. We can rest in Romans 8.1 that says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what we, we have to realize is that each Christian will be judged, but no Christian will be condemned. Okay, so we will stand before the judgment seat, but we will not be condemned. But we still need to live in a way that we realize that we should be obeying because there is a judgment coming. So this should give us both concern for our obedience, but also hope for our eternity. Now, you might be asking, again, this question about how does this change the way that we live? How should we obey in a way? Is there going to be some sort of a reward? Is there going to be some sort of punishment at all? I believe that Scripture does teach that there will be a reward. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 tells us to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven. Uh, Luke 6, 35 says, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And so this is something that the, the, the righteousness of Christ keeps us from condemnation, um, but our obedience keeps us from losing our reward. And so that's essentially what this passage is teaching us. Obedience is essential to the Christian faith. So Titus 1.6 says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So the question you have to ask yourself is, does your life show that you know God? Are you resting in Christ while still working for your reward. That's a really intricate balance. Are you resting in Christ while still also working for your reward? Not working for your salvation, not working for a justification, but working for your reward. You want to please God. Is that true? 
of your life. Uh, the apostle then describes the groups which all humanity fall into. And so verses 7 and 8, it says, And those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So we have to remember, again, this section of scripture is a piece of a segment or an argument that is much larger than the, this small paragraph. This is really part of a multi-chapter section where Paul is leading a discussion of the Jews into the gospel, but he's talking about judgment, he's talking about law, he's talking about Christ. We're going to see that, the, the, lack of un, uh, the lack of righteousness that we have in chapter 3. And so this is a piece that fits within a greater context. And we need to understand that he's trying to use familiar language to the Jews uh, that we're going to see, again, more clarity uh, in, in chapters, uh, later in chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. But the first group is people who seek for glory and honor and immortality. And as we know, these three things can only be found in Christ alone. So then uh, he goes on to tell us of really the second group, uh, which to the Jew would sound more like uh, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles, but he's really speaking to the Jews. He says, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Uh, nevertheless, that Paul really does offer three characteristics of these people who are perishing, and he's absolutely including the Jews and the Gentiles in the same group here. Uh, first, he says about these people, they are seeking self-approval rather than God's approval. They are, in a real sense, uh, make themselves out to be the arbiter of what is right and wrong. This is very pharisaical. This is something that you would see in the Jewish culture. This is also something we see in modern culture, uh, people love to be self-seeking and self-serving. Uh, Walter Chantry, he said a great quote. He wrote, The roots of this depravity are quite evident in very young children. Babies may not show all the ugly outworking of sin, but their selfishness is quite apparent. Any time of the day or night, they will howl when their little egos are annoyed. Brothers and sisters, have noticed how small children are self-seeking. When treats are being given, a me-first attitude prevails. Small children want to, the chief attention. It is all self-serving. This all-demanding self will mature into that of a grasping adult. Though clever devices, uh, they will, or through clever devices, they will make their selfishness polite and genteel. But their goal remains the same, self Self is the idol that carries many men to hell. So this is talking about selfishness. Now, we live in a culture that is absolutely saturated with self-love, self-seeking, self-confidence. Um, this is a self-loving culture. The next thing he talks about is these people do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. And so this is an echo of gospel truth, right? This is you're not obeying Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, but you're obeying unrighteousness, lawlessness, Satan. He is your father. He is the one that you're obeying. He's talking about these people who are lost. And then Paul closes by saying that for these people, they will experience wrath and fury. Okay, so God is a God of justice. We know this. We don't expect that even a, a human judge is going to overlook a crime against the law of our land. 
Um, so we can't expect a perfect judge to overlook the crimes against a divine moral law. God must punish sin to maintain his perfect justice. And so Eric Alexander once said, the real horror of being outside of Christ is that there is no shelter from the wrath of God. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, and do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So hell is where God essentially is pouring out his fury and his wrath upon those who have broken his law and not found peace and righteousness through Jesus Christ. And so Paul then turns really to his central objective for this passage of scripture, which is really to lay the groundwork uh, for Christ as a requirement for all people, uh, both Jew and Gentile, that they are essentially can't keep the law, that uh, the judgment is coming. He wants to assure the Jewish people and make sure that they're really not pacifying themselves uh, with some fantasy that they won't experience eternal destruction if they don't turn to Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ, again, leveled the playing field. This is something new for the Jewish culture. No one comes to God except through him. And he says in verse 9 through 11, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Again, he's not talking about moralism here. This is a small section of a greater argument, a coordinated argument that he's putting together that's going to get more and more clear in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. So we can't take this without looking the context uh, by which this passage is resting upon. And so the point that Paul's making here is that as it pertains to judgment and our reward is that both Jews and Greeks were now equal before God, and namely God does not show partiality between these two groups of people. Uh, the exclusivity, the specialness, the privileged nature of the Jews had come to an end. And this is a major dispensational shift. And I say that in terms of just a, a shift in a dispensation of time. Um, God's uh, chosen people were anyone who believed. Now, this is why we need to, this is good context for people that need to understand the shift of the culture of the New Testament writers. Um, the superiority complex of the Jews is the reason we have verses like 1 John 2.2 that says, he is the propitiation for our sins, that is the Jews, and not for ours only, the Jews, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, we have so many people that use that passage of scripture that say, oh, no, Jesus didn't die just for the elect. He died for everybody. He died for the sins of the whole world. They, they, they don't understand the cultural context of that passage of scripture that the Jews really believed that uh, they were a special people and that they were God's special people and only the Messiah would come for them. And so when Jesus opened up his uh, grace and salvation to the entire world, essentially with this passage in 1 John 2, 2, he's a propitiation for our sins and not only for the Jews, but also for the sins of every tribe, nation, and tongue. Not for every individual, because then we'd be universalists. He's not the propitiation for every single individual of, in the world 
or for the whole world as a whole, including all, all people. He's the propitiation for not just the Jews only, but for people who believe in every tribe, nation, and tongue. So this is a, a shift. This is also John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is another example that God loves the world. He's saying that God doesn't just love Israel. He loves the whole world, not only as a creation, but he loves his people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. But it's only those people who believe that will be saved. And there will be people who believe from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so uh, now, today's lesson really is summed up in the idea that moralism and pride are the most potent forms uh, of poison for the human soul. Moralism and pride. If you're working to keep yourself saved, you need to realize that's not the gospel. Uh, if you're believing that you can have some sort of law keeping and God's happier with you in the sense that he's, uh, he's giving you more justified nature or you're, you're, you're maintaining your status as a son or daughter of God, that's not true. No, you're only made righteous and justified by Christ alone or through your faith in Christ alone. Um, now, yes, you can please God with your behavior in the sense that you are walking in obedience for what Christ has done for you, and you can have that uh, desire to be obedient for a greater reward, uh, but your motivation is for the reward, not for your salvation. Uh, and those two are, are very different things. And so, uh, again, if you, like the Jews, believe that you can simply ride into heaven because of some confidence you have in your heritage, or you went to church enough, or your family's Catholic, or your family's Christian, or you said a prayer when you were a little kid at church camp, or whatever it may be, um, if you think heaven is achieved by good behavior or church attendance, again, you, you are deceived. You cannot think that way. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not good news that you have to work your way. No, it's, it's absolutely that the work has been done in Christ. Good behavior is simply the fruit of salvation. It's not the root of salvation. Jesus Christ is the root of salvation. So we obey because of what Christ has done. We obey because we will stand before the king. We obey because we want to please God. That's what we're trying to get across here. So second, we learn that God does not show partiality. All of us have the same future outside of Christ. Uh, we all have the same future. We're destined for wrath and fury because we've all broken the law. Uh, if you trust in Christ, you will inherit eternal life. Uh, if you trust in yourself, you will inherit eternal wrath and fury. Those are the two destinations that Paul is getting across here. So the evidence of those who trust in Christ will be written on your life, right? If you, if you have peace and joy and compassion and the fruits of the Spirit, uh, you will be marked with Christ and you will have eternal life. If you have anxiety and anger and worry and fear, you, you're marked with Satan and you're not going to inherit eternal life. Um, so again, my, my encouragement to you is this, examine yourself. Are you, are you working to keep yourself saved or are you working for your reward? Are you resting in Christ? Are you understanding the universal judgment of God and how it differs from condemnation for the Christian? So again, run to Christ alone. Cling to him for your righteousness. That is the core message of today. So hopefully this was edifying. 
and helpful for you guys to understand just another dimension and mechanical piece of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're a regular listener to this podcast or this show, we'd love to have you leave a comment below if you're watching the video or leave a review uh, on the podcast app. Uh, on the podcast, you don't even need to write a review. You can just tap the stars and give us a review. Those reviews, though, really do help exposure of our show. You can just tap the thumbs up if you're watching on YouTube. Those things, again, all contribute to more people finding about our ministry and what we're doing here at relearn.org. On that note, thank you for listening to this episode of Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge, and I'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. 